our trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Come, pull up a chair, revel in wrong think as we challenge the narrative and maybe in the process slaughter a few sacred cows. My friend Eric Peters joins me as he does each week. This is kind of a counseling session. I should probably be cutting you a check, Eric. <laughs> well, no need to do that. Uh, but it was nice the other day to find uh, to see Saturday Night Live actually being funny for a couple of minutes, wasn't it? Yeah. Is In fact, uh, let's talk about a couple of examples of truth being spoken in, in ways mm-hmm. that I'm sure horrified the, the members of the establishment. Now, Woody, Woody Harrelson gave quite a monologue. Give me your reaction to what he was talking about on Saturday Night Live. Well, it was funny because it was true. You know, the irony of it, he presented a uh, fictitious script that he was supposedly given, uh, you know, prior to the, uh, the pandemic in trademark, uh, in which uh, the, the great drug cartels, that is the pharmaceutical industry, got together, used their buying power to buy up all the media and the politicians, uh, and then force everybody to stay in their homes until they took the cartel's drugs. And that was pretty damn <laughs> incisive and funny. But, you know, as he's saying it, you could see the mood of the audience change. The audience that's there for a laugh and for some, for some truth-telling, which is what comedy really is all about. You know, it's, it's about, about pointing out awkward and uncomfortable truths about things. We laugh because of that. that. That's what makes us laugh. Anyway, you know, he starts to do that, and the crowd realizes that a line is being crossed. Uh, you know, an orthodoxy is being made fun of. And uh, boom, you know, now probably he's going to have to do the proverbial frog march in front of all the uh, the press who may a culpa for uh, his wrong thing. Yeah, it was it was very satisfying to hear him talk about, you know, how, how they bought up all the media. They bought up, you know, the press. And then immediately, how did the press react? Well, exactly like they would if they had been paid <laughs> off. Yes, which they have been. I mean, it's not even a jibe. It's literally true. You, know, you and I have talked on a number of occasions about that wonderful clip that you can still find, amazingly, on YouTube and also BitChute and some other places uh, that juxtaposes all the brought-to-you-by-Pfizer ads uh, that you'll find in practically every mainstream media news and news analysis show that's on the air. So they literally have bought the media. It's it's a scary time for people who are willing to think outside the boundaries of approved opinion. Um, Scott uh, Adams, the creator of Dilbert, another one who yeah. um, I'm trying to decide if he unwittingly or if he deliberately just walked into the buzzsaw of cancel culture. But uh, I, I'm sure you've you've probably seen you know his clip where he was was putting forth an opinion that uh, he's not supposed to say. What's what's your reaction? Yeah. Well, you know, I give him a lot of credit for walking back what he said initially, at least with regard to the vaccines. Uh, he was one of the most strident proponents of the narrative at the time. True. And like a lot of people, I will, you know, I will give him the benefit of the doubt, which I think is borne out by what he said recently, uh, by which I mean, I think he was genuine. I think he really did believe it. That doesn't mean he was right, but I think he was genuine in that he believed that the vaccines were good and that all of this was a matter of legitimately a matter of public health and so on. But, you know, as the facts began to contradict that, he came out and said, you know what, uh, the hard, horrible anti-vax people were right. And he, he said they made the right choice. And ever since then, he's been persona non grata. And, 
you know, luckily for him, I'm sure he's quite, you know, quite wealthy after many years of being a, a famous comic writer. So he can't afford to do that. He can afford to indulge in wrong thing. But still, I do give him credit for having the guts to do it publicly. Yeah, his his comments uh, this last week, and and perhaps I, I don't know if there's a non awkward way to say this, but he said, you know, I've been trying to help uh, the black community, you know, for yeah. for a long time. But he says I've really come yeah. to the conclusion that uh, people who want to, people who hate you, people who are looking for reasons to hate you, he says you're really better off not associating with them, and and. Boy, you you do not speak oh, yeah. blasphemy against uh, what I guess is is becoming kind of a state religion for us. Yeah, well, and he's right about that. I don't think he said it exactly the right way, though. Uh, you know, the fact is that blacks are being encouraged to hate whites, and for that reason, whites are legitimately becoming afraid of blacks. And who benefits from that? Well, the, the same people who brought us masks and vaccines benefit from that. And I think that's what I would have said if I'd been him. Yeah, it's, I mean, I, I hope that the guy has, you know, some good financial reserves because it looks like he's he's being canceled on every turn. But um, I don't think there was anything malicious in what he was saying. I, I don't think he was he was out to just, you know, be a polemicist and, and, and try to, to get ire out of people. I think the guy genuinely was, was frustrated and saying, you know what, everything I've tried that, that I supposed was helping really isn't helping. So, okay, fine. I'm going to wash my hands and just stop helping as, you know, as a, I, I think, I don't know how he could have said it, you know, without people finding offense because they're just waiting to find offense. Yeah. I, I put him in the category of the well-meant and honest liberal. Uh, and in that category, I also put RFK Jr. And also Seinfeld, you know, you notice you don't hear much from Seinfeld anymore because uh, his comedy is too triggering and too offensive. Uh, and he's on the left. I mean, he's a liberal guy. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, I think these guys are still part of the human race, if you will. Um, uh, and a lot of these leftists no longer are. They're they're pathological. They're deranged. They're violent. They're mentally ill. And they're dangerous. And in that sense, I absolutely agree with Gilbert. You stay away from such people. Yep. Well, moving on, um, it looks like, uh, you know, we've, we've passed the one-year anniversary of Russia's <clears throat> unprovoked uh, invasion of Ukraine. Yeah. Uh, Joe Biden yeah. actually made an appearance over there, kind of a rock star. Um, you know, as much money as he sent, I guess I, I wouldn't uh, doubt that he receives a hero's welcome. Give, <laughs> right. Give me your thoughts on uh, the goings-on in Kiev and, uh, and where we seem to be taken by the political class. Well, it's spectacular. Uh, it seems as though every political figure in this country is going there to pay homage, including the Secretary of the Treasury, and of all people, Stacey Abrams, who isn't even uh, an elected member of anything right now, uh, somehow has the funds to go over to stand with Kiev. Uh, and, and, and meanwhile, uh, they're continuing to essentially say to Putin that, you know, if he does not surrender to Kiev, that he will be prosecuted as a war criminal. And they're giving the man absolutely no room to maneuver to come to some sort of a reasonable accommodation about this. And that's, to me, strikingly, strikingly dangerous. I don't know what their, their goal here is. It seems to be the goal is to provoke some kind of a, a direct conflict with the Russians. And I don't know who that benefits. Yeah, I, I think generally the political class has made its mind up, you know, uh, Russia is is the enemy and we're all supposed to fall in lockstep. But I, I'll tell you, I do not see good guys. On, on any side here. And frankly, to, to me, the bigger threat is the people in Washington, D.C., more so than Vladimir Putin. Yeah, you know, and there's another element to this that's striking. Uh, you know, I draw a historical parallel here to World War One, which was kind of a, a, a concatenation of stupid mistakes, one made after the other, that made everything worse. 
the arts, uh, the, the heir to the Austrian Empire was uh, shot by an anarchist, and that caused the whole thing to, to spin out of control. And I say to people, you know, if Sarajevo wasn't worth the however tens of many millions of casualties that occurred as a result of World War One, how is it that Ukraine is worth the possibility of perhaps hundreds of millions of casualties? Right. Right. And and it just seems like the, the ramping up continues. I mean, some of the things that were being said by uh, Zelensky, as well as, uh, you know, members of uh, the uh, the foreign policy establishment here in America. I mean, they're they're flat out threatening. You're going to have Russian ships off your shores and Russian planes in your skies. And you're going to have to send your sons and daughters to fight. And uh, I, first of all, speaking as a, as a parent, hell no, I'm not going to send my sons and daughters to fight for a bunch of, uh, you know, corrupt jackals. Yeah, by the way, and it's nonsense. You know, if the fact is, if, if Putin, if the Russians had wanted to annihilate the entirety of Ukraine, to just seize it and take it over, they have more than the capability to do that. Putin has been very clear about his limited objectives, which means uh, that they want to get NATO out of Ukraine, which is legitimate in my view. I don't see why that's any less legitimate than, you know, a hypothetical scenario, us wanting Warsaw out of the Warsaw Pact out of Mexico, let's say. Uh, and also he wanted to do something about the ethnically Russian areas that are uh, directly abutting Russia, which he has done. And that's it. And it seems like those were his limited aims, and he's willing to come to the table as far as the rest. Uh, and I don't know why uh, we're supposed to believe that somehow uh, it's more than that and, and, and provoke World War III over it. And there are some really great commentators out there. I noticed, in fact, uh, Lou Rockwell uh, today had uh, some really good background on how exactly did this whole mess in Ukraine start? And and I know the, the catchphrase of the moment is, well, it was unprovoked. That's how it started. But no, you go back to 2014, uh, the U.S. Uh, foreign policy establishment has its fingerprints all over what happened yeah. and, and the, the ongoing unrest and, of course, the desire to put missiles right there on, on Russia's border. I mean, would we have reacted differently? Yeah, I don't know. Let's look back at October 1962. How did we react then? We, very much so, exactly. We reacted in a very much the same way that the Russians are reacting now in that it was not acceptable. We, we, we cannot abide it. We can't have Russia's nuclear missiles literally right on our doorstep. And I think the, the really the fulcrum of this is that the Russians were promised, literally promised, uh, that NATO would not expand into Eastern Europe. And yet NATO continues to expand. NATO, a Cold War alliance, that was formed to fight the Soviet Union, which hasn't existed for 30 years. You know, I mean, it's it's just it's 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 bizarre. It, it, it's it's ridiculous. It's undermining my trust in the political class. <laughs> Not that there was much to begin with. Okay, hold that thought, Eric. We're going to come back. We got some more important things to discuss today. Eric Peters is my guest. We'll be right back. This is the Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com is my guest. I like to consult with Eric on matters related to freedom. I like to consult with him on things related to cars, since uh, cars and, and automotive things are related to freedom as well. Eric, uh, the, the push towards EVs continues, and yet uh, every time they push, I see more and more reasons not to buy into it. How much can I trust what, what is being told to me uh, regarding EVs? Next to nothing. You know, it's of a piece with the masks and the vaccines and everything that they told us uh, about the uh, the supposedly dead, deadly airborne respiratory virus that didn't kill 99.8 something percent of the population. The degree of 
uh, malfeasance and dishonesty in the press with regard to EVs is striking. Even on uh, car sites, the other day uh, there was a piece on Jalopnik, which is a pretty big car site, and uh, the headline was that uh, electric vehicles are now cheaper than the average non-electric car, which is absolutely not true. Uh, the, the, the shuck and jive was that last year the average transaction price, meaning what somebody paid for a car, uh, was about $45,000, which just happens to be about what the average cost of an electric vehicle is right now. So that's how they came up with EVs are now cheaper. Except, of course, they leave out the fact that you can still buy any number of cars for, you know, $23,000, dollars $24,000, including a car like a Honda Civic, which is almost identical to a Tesla Model 3 in terms of its basic layout, its size, the room it has, and everything else, except that it's not electric, and it costs half as much as a Tesla Model 3. Wow. You know, I've been paying really close attention. Where I live in Idaho, uh, there's a very scenic uh, canyon, the Snake River Canyon, and a beautiful overlook right next mm-hmm. to, to Twin Falls. And, uh, and, and of course, they put in a nice bank of uh, Tesla charging stations right there at, mm-hmm. uh, at the edge of the canyon, you know, by the visitor center. And I pay very close attention. When anytime I'm driving by there, I just I have to look and see how many people are, you know, uh, plugged in and mm-hmm. waiting. But the key is. You never see anybody who looks like they're there for short term. They are all settled in, cooling their heels, yeah. uh, almost resigned to, well, we're going to be here for a while. Yeah. You know, and here's another thing that this article and uh, uh, journalists in general are not telling people about electric cars when they talk about the cost of electric cars. They always reference what the base price is. But that's dishonest because an electric car's base price is not analogous to the base price of a non-electric car in that when you buy the base trim of an EV, you typically get a weaker battery and significantly less range. For example, you'll hear them tout the Nissan Leaf, which is one of the least expensive EVs you can get. It's about 26,000 bucks. But for 26,000 bucks, all you get is 149 miles of range, best case. Wow. If you want more than 200, then you gotta spend $36,000. And you know, with, with Tesla, you know, they claim, oh look, the Tesla Model 3, it got cheaper. It's only $44,000 now, which is true, but that's the model that has the weak battery. If you want the one that can actually go, uh, you know, 300 miles on best case scenario, that one's going to cost you about $55,000. Ah, but as long as they're telling me what I want to believe, you know, I'm, I'm going to be okay, right? That worked out yeah. really well, like with, you know, the vaccine and whatnot. But, but this is, again, it's, it's deliberately disingenuous in my opinion. I mean, imagine if they were telling people that uh, you a Toyota Corolla, you go out and buy a Toyota Corolla, a non-electric car, and they don't tell you that it comes from the factory with a pinhole leak in the gas tank. Uh, just above the three-quarters full line, so that whenever you fill the tank, uh, as you drive down the road, you lose about a you know about a third or a fourth of the amount of fuel that you just put into the tank. I mean, what would you think if they didn't tell you that? And that's essentially what they're doing with regard to EVs. Yeah, I think about that every time I go out to start my car on a cold morning, and we've had a number of cold mornings here of late, and 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 that's when I I thank my lucky stars that uh, that I don't have an EV, which you know, has, has lost, you know, a significant portion of its travel range just because it was colder overnight than usual. Yeah, they have managed to gaslight, gaslight the population into somehow equating waiting for a half hour, 45 minutes, an hour. Somehow that now is the definition of fast. I mean, don't you want to just curl up into a ball sometimes? It's, you know, given the trade-offs, I, yes, they're they're cool. They have neat features and whatnot, but... I don't know. Maybe I'm I'm just trying to be a little too strategic in my thinking, but it seems like electricity is something that can easily be controlled or, for that matter, taken away mm-hmm. if 
exactly. somebody in power wants to do so. Yes, exactly. And I think that really is one of the key take-home points here, is that ultimately these electric vehicles are about controlling mobility, and, and they can control your mobility by controlling the power. And the power is controlled centrally. You know, the electricity is only on if they keep it on. Some people will say, well, I can have solar, and then I'll be independent. And I the problem is you'd have to have a massive and massively expensive solar array to generate the necessary power uh, to put any kind of juice back into uh, an EV. And then you're, at best case, you're talking about overnight, 24 hours, uh, because you cannot fast charge an electric car at home. You need DC commercial grade 400 to 800 volt charging that is just not practical uh, at, at the residential level. Wow. And I, I know within the last couple of weeks, I've also seen an article that indicates if, if we were to make a complete switch over to EVs, which it sounds like California is pushing for and maybe some others, mm. just the, the raw materials needed to, uh, to get the batteries would, would be almost impossible to obtain. In other words, it's... Yeah, and, and, and that is why the price of electric vehicles has not come down. Remember when they told us that the price of EVs, oh, don't worry, you know, they were initially very expensive, but that's because they're just being built in very small numbers. And once they start ramping them up and improving the batteries, the cost is going to come down. It hasn't. In fact, it's gone up, uh, with the exception of Tesla, which I think is subsidizing its own cars, which it can do because of its stock valuation. But the rest of the electric car industry, GM, Ford, all those people, have been increasing the price of their EVs because the demand for these materials has gone up, and there's a limited supply of them. It's expensive to get lithium. It's expensive to get cobalt, graphite, and all the other materials that are necessary for these batteries, and they know it. And again, it just points back to the whole end game, which is not to replace the existing fleet of cars with electric cars. It's to get most people out of cars, period, using electric cars. Yep. I, I just remember the mantra over the last, oh, I don't know, 30 years or so, we fought too many wars for oil. And it makes me wonder, mm -hmm. gee, would we fight wars for rare earth minerals that, uh, you know, go into making these these batteries for electric cars? Be yeah, curious funny, to know. You never hear that from the left, notwithstanding that a lot of that production is in China and right. other places that are hostile to us. Uh, you know, just like you don't hear much from the left anymore about the free press, <laughs> freedom of speech either. No, unless it's in the, the context of we need to restrict this in order to preserve our freedoms. But that's yeah. a that's a story for another time. I want to just touch briefly. We've got about two minutes left here. You had a great article, sure. the auto bond, and because yeah. because I once had the experience of driving on the auto bond, I was very curious about what your take would be. Walk us through. Uh, someone from CNN apparently was, was uh, kind of complaining about the auto bond. Yeah, well, another climate changer who's deriding the high speed sections of the auto bond. The entirety of the auto bond is not unlimited speed, but there are sections where there's no formal speed limit and. You can drive as fast as you'd like to go. Uh, and he was mortified by this, uh, and not just because of, oh, it's unsafe and because of speed, but because when you drive <laughs> fast, you're burning more fuel, and that's causing climate change. So it's the usual shibboleth, and that's going to be uh, the tool, the wedge, that they are going to try to deploy to get rid of the unlimited speed sections of the Autobahn and shut down probably the last thing in Germany that's still fun. Yeah, it's, I mean... <sighs> Look, I, I care about the the climate too, but I'm not uh, I'm not arrogant enough to believe that I'm the one affecting you know how warm the Earth is or isn't. As far as safety, then I, I don't think I ever felt safer than I did on the autobahn. It's right. because the drivers were competent. Yes, and that's not uh, an assertion or an opinion. It's a fact. Despite having these unlimited speeds uh, sections on the autobahn, they're 
their uh, fatality rate is considerably lower. And that's because people over there understand how to drive and pay attention to their driving. Nobody squats in the left lane ever. Because if you do, that's how you're going to get rear-ended, rear-ended by a Porsche doing 190. You know, you move, you, you scan your mirrors and look, and you get out of the way. And, you know, it, it keeps the cell phone-addled, torpid, passive people that we have to deal with all the time on American roads off of their roads. Yep. I think you said it best a long time ago, and that is, you know, the, the people who have their head in the game are not unsafe drivers. Whatever speed they're driving, yep. if they have their head in the game and are paying attention, they're not the ones who are at risk. It's the uh, daydreamers. Eric, great That's to visit great. with you as always. Look forward to our next conversation. Likewise, Brian. Good deal. Me too. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Thank you again for, well, sitting down and engaging in some good-spirited wrong think as we navigate our way forward through these, uh, I was going to say troubled times, but I should just say chaotic times because things are just, they're getting weird on every corner. And, you know, the funny thing is, I, I look around over the last three years, We've had a lot of time to engage in some hindsight to kind of analyze, all right, what went wrong? Why did it go wrong? And some people, I think, have done a very good job of coming up with the right answers or at least uh, reasonable answers. Okay, here's where we went off track. And yet all of officialdom still maintains, well, we did nothing wrong. And even if we did, it was only with the best of intentions. And it's, it's so funny to watch them try to seize control of the narrative and manage it now that, uh, that their lies are being exposed. Where do I be, what, what do I mean by that specifically? Well, it could cover a lot of different, uh, different areas. Another thing that has caused me great puzzlement is why did so many people choose to comply with all the various mandates that were given to us? Now, I understand, and I remember, you know, at the beginning, when, when the COVID pandemic was first starting, I think all of us had kind of a deer-in-the-headlights look on our faces just going, whoa. Where is this going to go? We didn't know for sure how bad it was going to be. I mean, we were told, oh, this is going to be terrible. There's a hospital's overwhelmed, bodies stacking up everywhere you can see. But it didn't happen. And people have been asking the question. I've seen this several times on Twitter. People asking, when did you realize that uh, what we were being told versus what was actually happening weren't adding up? When did you realize that, that uh, the experts were getting things wrong? And for a lot of people, it was about roughly two weeks in that they started to go, wait a minute, this isn't quite right. But I want to come back to that that aspect of human nature. What is it about compliance that makes people comply with things that they otherwise would be like, ah, this doesn't feel right, but uh, why would we go along with it? Got a great article here from Paul Rosenberg. Debt and Compliance. Yeah, there's, he draws a very interesting parallel between these two concepts. Now, Paul says, I've advised people to get and stay out of debt for a long time, but even so, I didn't fully appreciate or understand the effects of debt until COVID time hit us. And he says, as the mayhem spread, I struggled to understand the level of compliance with what would have been at any other time criminal medical advice. To take an untested or at least a largely untested 
vaccine, meaning there was really no long-term period of testing to see what the effects would be, and one that didn't even fit the the definition of a vaccine, at least until they rewrote the definition on the fly. Well, certainly, he says, compliance was driven by massive applications of fear, and certainly it was accompanied by exceptional levels of guilt, as in, you'll be responsible for killing grandma, but still, there was more to it, and that's, that's the extra piece that he realized soon enough was debt. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, if I had an economist on my payroll, I would assign them a very simple task. Go find the relevant data and correlate levels of debt and levels of compliance. And he says, I bet large that uh, the the correlation would be statistically significant. So, for instance, consider the typical police officer. He or she is on the job for benefits and steady paychecks. Uh, Large American cities aren't going to stop writing paychecks anytime soon, nor will the various police unions let go of the benefits packages that justify them. So this exemplary cop, like nearly all police officers, is deeply in debt. They have a mortgage, quite possibly a home equity loan or a line of credit. They also have a car loan or two and credit cards beyond that. There may even be student loans. So this typical law enforcer cannot leave their job without facing financial ruin. Financial ruin plus a complete loss of place and standing. And such a loss to them would be an almost existential crisis. So when orders come down from the high and mighties demanding they comply with a medical regime, the choice they face is between compliance and complete ruin. Now consider the average doctor. Although they make more money than police, they also have a larger home loan, larger car loans, and definitely larger student loans. More than that, the independence of physicians was destroyed by Obamacare. So the doctors in America were in no better shape than the police officers of America. They could either comply or be ruined. And Paul points out the situation in other places really isn't much better, generally. The same, of course, goes for nurses, teachers, and a hundred other types. Nearly everyone in the West in the past couple of decades has been stampeded into massive levels of debt. It's been the only way to keep a certain level of prosperity and lifestyle, and of course, it has worked. If you found respectable employment with anything big, corporations, institutions, or government, you've been able to roll over your debt indefinitely. So when everyone associated with large employers was ordered, seemingly in concert, to take a highly questionable vaccine, the majority agonized for a while, and then they complied. Now, he points out, none of this is to say that the people who complied are stupid or weak or anything of the sort. What he's pointing out is they were merely under enormous pressure during a deeply confused moment, submerged in fear. In that situation, they had no choice but to weigh the risks as best they could and then make the choice that seemed to offer the least pain, and so they did. But now it's clear that the fear was overplayed that the vaccines didn't stop anyone from getting the disease, and there have been both health and financial repercussions. But it wasn't so clear at the time. He says, during the mayhem, the people who complied under pressure generally thought those who didn't, or at least if they were vocal about it. After all, they were directly challenging their dignity. But now, however, time has passed and only diehards, in other words, those who profited from the COVID time, are still hammering away with guilt and fear. And the police officers at all are sorting things out. By ones and twos, they're becoming ready to say that things went too far. So what he says is, he says, I hope that these people will recognize the role that debt played in their choices. Debt was a sword hanging over their heads. 
and it distorted their decision process. So if you want practical freedom, we need to be free from the influence of debt. The people controlling all that debt have far more power over us than we thought. As it turns out, the old admonitions to avoid debt weren't wrong. Debt can undermine our choices and subvert our character. It's to be used sparingly and carefully at best. Well, that's some pretty timely advice, and it sure does ring true. And, and I would add to that, think about what was happening to the Canadian truckers just a year ago. Many of them, you know, carrying the note on their rig that they drove, when, uh, when the powers that be stepped in and invoked this emergency power in Canada and started, you know, going after their bank accounts and even the people who were donating money to help, uh, you know, help them meet their bills. Isn't that something? They were put into that position of, well, you either uh, toe the line or financially you're going to get ruined. I think that's, uh, there's a great lesson in there. Hopefully we're paying attention. All right, going to shift gears here. There's another story I want to share with you. This is just kind of a quick little bit of advice, but it's some of the best advice I've ever seen. Uh, James Walpole, this is a a piece that he published back in uh, 2017 on the Foundation for Economic Education. It's titled, Powerful People Don't Defend Themselves. Now listen to what he's talking about here. Because what he's saying is to become defensive and to justify yourself is to allow your accuser to choose the battlefield and set the benchmarks. He says, have you ever gained face with your critics by defending yourself to them? Have you ever gained the respect of people who mock you or question you by telling them they're wrong about you? It's tempting to mount a defense when people criticize you. But James says, the older I get, though, the more I realize that defending yourself with words, at least, is counterproductive. Defensiveness for most human interactions is a sign of weakness. It begins with an implicit admission that the accuser is worthy of a defense from you. Mm. The critic becomes worthy to sit in a place of judgment over you. So to become defensive and justify yourself is to allow your accuser to choose the battlefield and set the benchmarks of your innocence or guilt. So let's go back to high school, for example. If someone calls you uncool and you spend time explaining how cool you really are, you pretty quickly prove to everyone listening that you're not. Look at the business world, too. If someone accuses you of not being effective enough as a team member, do you gain more by protesting and rattling off reasons you're great? No, on the contrary, you look desperate. So dealing with accusation seems like a rigged game. Words are empty when you would really expect them to count. Fortunately, he says there are far better things to do than defend yourself or justify yourself. Critics are not bad, but you should engage them on a level playing field. Maybe the most powerful story of how to deal with accusers is the story of Jesus standing trial before Herod, as portrayed in the Gospel of Luke. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. So Jesus maintains a stoic calm throughout his trial. He doesn't speak up to justify himself. He acts nobly and speaks the truth which only amounts to a few words throughout the course of his conversations with Herod and with the Roman governor Pilate. So in this conduct, we see Jesus successfully throwing back the criminality of the trial and the baselessness of the accusations against his accusers. So he's ultimately killed, but even Pilate is unconvinced of his guilt by the end of the trial. Jesus succeeds in transcending accusation through action. It's a great article. I'd invite you, please check it out for yourself. You'll find it linked in today's show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Please take a moment, if you would, to go to my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. Check out my sponsors. And if you feel like it, if it's if it strikes you as the right thing to do, please consider doing business with them. They include TMCP Nation. That's the Modern Conservative Podcast Nation, my friend John Harvey. If you really are into freedom, and I know some people are, John's got some wonderful swag that would make it, uh, well, fun and fashionable for you to let others know where you stand. Also, I want to thank Borelli.com, LifesavingFood.com, and MonticelloCollege.org. Okay, two quick articles I want to touch on in the final segment here today. First one is, uh, you know, Roald Dahl's estate has been given the has given the okay to politically correct rewrites of his works. Talked about this a little bit last week. I love the article that I found on OffGuardian.org, where Kit Knightley says, you know, no matter what you think of Roald Dahl, this is the fast track to normalizing post hoc censorship. So it's not just about, you know, the guy who created Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, James and the Giant Peach, or the Big Friendly Giant, or any of that. It's, it's, it's about normalizing a rewrite of everything. Does that not sound Orwellian to you? C.J. Hopkins actually <clears throat> gave a great recounting of this, and, and uh, Kit Knightley links to C.J. Hopkins' latest column. But uh, the bottom line is, That normalization of post hoc censorship, that should be very concerning. And some are saying, well, the reason that they're doing this is because the uh, Dahl estate closed this big deal with Netflix for exclusive rights to all of Dahl's work. See, capitalism is to blame. But that's a simplification. After all, Netflix, if you haven't watched it recently, is a lot more than just an entertainment company. They have political ties. Oh, look at the themes that they're pushing. And and they relentlessly push state-backed propaganda. But what you're seeing is uh, Roald Dahl being selected as the guy to be led down the memory hole. And it makes you wonder, what's next? If it's okay to go back and revise language, uh, who are we going to go after next? Charles Dickens? Mark Twain? How about the news? That's a big ticket item. How about what words won't be acceptable next year? Inside job? Guantanamo Bay? What history will be deemed offensive? In other words, you're not supposed to know about it. What facts will be potentially harmful? I find it very ironic that the people who push critical race theory claim, well, we're only doing this because nobody's teaching real history, but their own history is very sensorial and it, and it omits things that are inconvenient to their particular Marxist you know, leanings. But right now you've got people saying, well, you know, people who read stuff like Tolkien or Shakespeare and Orwell, why, those are texts that could radicalize extremists, right-wing extremists. In other words, if you pick up a copy of 1984 and you go, wow, there are some really interesting parallels with our society. See? Wow, George Orwell, he radicalized you and turned you into a right-wing extremist. No. (laughs) What George Orwell did was got you thinking in such a way that you started to recognize patterns of authoritarianism or totalitarianism or mental manipulation and applied it to, to the world in which you live and went, whoa, wait a minute, I see where this is being done to me. Well, you're not supposed to do that. <laughs> you're supposed to be oblivious to the fact that we're manipulating you. Yeah, good luck with that. By the way, because of this tendency to want to rewrite everything, I guess this is a green light for those of us who love books and collect books. Buy the book's 
that you intend to read, even if you don't have time to read them right now, get a hard copy of those books. They're going to be collector's items at some point because they're the original unedited or unsanitized texts. Besides that, you might learn a thing or two if you do actually read them. All right, one final note. Um, Oh, man, the left wing was going nuts last week when, uh, what's her name, Marjorie Taylor Greene was talking about uh, it's time for a national divorce. The red states go one way, the blue states go another way. Oh, they went nuts. And Ryan McMakin uh, takes apart their narrative that, well, these red states wouldn't survive a minute because they're dependent upon the blue state gravy train. Oh, no. He says, when, when Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene called again for a national divorce, the common retort among her detractors on Twitter was to claim that, well, so-called red states are heavily dependent on so-called blue states to pay for pretty much everything. In fact, he has a couple of examples from reporter Molly Knight, who claimed, for example, that red states get their money for roads and cops and schools from blue states. You cut off that gravy train and you've got a third world country. Now, others claim that red states would be entirely broke without blue states. America's social democrats have apparently gone full over to pushing the narrative that red states are poor and backward, while the blue states are productive and economically sophisticated. Here's a tweet from Tim Wise. Has it ever occurred to you that if it weren't for the blue parts of those red states, the latter would be entirely broke? We subsidize y'all's country asses. You're welcome. Oh, the arrogance. The implication, Ryan McMakin says here, is that red states would never survive any sort of separation from blue states because the red states would then miss out on the presumably large amounts of free money. Well, he says, unfortunately for these critics, the data really doesn't back them up. And while it's certainly true that a handful of red states receive much more in federal spending than their residents pay in federal taxes, this is not at all the situation across most red states. And it's especially not the case in states with larger metropolitan areas like Florida and Texas. The real story is more complicated, and to see the details, we can look at state-by-state comparisons in terms of return on taxes paid. That's a measure of how much each state state receives in federal spending for every dollar extracted in federal taxes. So states with a return above $1 are getting back more than their residents paid in federal taxes. States in a a residents rather in a state with a return below a dollar actually pay more than they receive. So to do this, he says, we start with the tax collections from each state as reported by the Internal Revenue Service. Then we look at the federal spending in each state. Now, there are some smaller categories of spending that are difficult to track, but we can capture the overwhelming majority of federal spending in each state by looking at several key categories. These include things like state revenues from federal intergovernmental transfers, Department of Defense spending, federal share of Medicaid by state, Medicare spending by state, Social Security spending by state. By this analysis, federal spending in Minnesota amounted to just 48 cents for every tax dollar extracted from the state. On the other hand, Mississippi received more than $3 for every tax dollar paid by residents. Now, contrary to the idea that most red states are like Mississippi, however, we find that most states, both red and blue, are a lot closer to the middle on this one. The states that are within a few cents of receiving a dollar for a dollar, in other words, breaking even, are states like the Dakotas, North Carolina, Nevada, Wisconsin, Missouri, Utah, Maryland, Kansas, and Florida. Meanwhile, California and Texas are approximately equal with each other, receiving about 80 cents in federal spending for every dollar paid by residents in taxes. Now, Ryan says, my findings here are similar to the study repeatedly sent to Representative Green by many of her scoffing critics. Specifically, she was instructed to read the Money Geek article, which purportedly proves that red states depend heavily on blue state largesse in order to survive. 
But Ryan McMakin says, with both our analysis here and with the Money Geek article, we find that the characterization of red states as an economic drain on the country requires quite a bit of hyperbole. I can only imagine. Oh, and he asked, just how badly would these red states fare if they were to break off from the blue states? Well, only a minority of these states would be in the red and get back significantly more than they pay in. 15 out of 27 states are either net tax-paying states or within a few cents of breaking even. In other words, with the exception of states like Mississippi and West Virginia and Alabama, most of these states could realistically expect to be self-funding in the case of a national breakup. Moreover, viewed as a single block, the red state's overall return on taxes paid is just a dollar and two cents. Were these states to become an independent region of their own, it would hardly be impossible to manage with current tax resources. In fact, if a red states of America wanted to ensure available revenues exceeded current tax liabilities, the bloc could simply exclude the less productive states. If Mississippi and West Virginia don't bring much to the table, there's no immutable law of of nature requiring the red states of America to include them. So some of the current net tax receiver states could also easily change their fortunes by simply splitting off the less productive areas such as southwest Alabama, western Mississippi, and eastern Kentucky. The blue states would be happy enough to have those areas as dependencies. Now, he goes into a lot more details here, but the bottom line is the red states would survive. Representative Green's Twitter critics are clearly very enthusiastic about portraying Americans in red states as impoverished, unsophisticated welfare queens unable to get by without wealth transfers from the blue states. Now, that's a convenient narrative, but it's also an inaccurate one. Like in most scenarios, however, the succession would come with short-term economic dislocations and and disruptions, yet short-term economic troubles have never been an insurmountable obstacle to secession and revolution. The American revolutionaries, after all, voluntarily cut themselves off from trade and took on huge debts in order to achieve political independence. So short-term economic realities don't dictate long-term prospects. If a red states of America embraced global trade and reduced regulatory burden, it could expect to see its economy accelerate in the medium and longer term. Now, none of this is saying, therefore, it should happen right this moment, but it does point out that the critics who seem so desperate to control everybody else don't really have the leg to stand on. They think they do. This is The Brian Hyde Show.